0: There's a Peanuts comic that I really like. It's a conversation that takes place between Linus and his sister, Lucy. Uh, The comic begins with Lucy responding to something Linus has evidently said about the possibility of his being a doctor. You a doctor? Ha! She says. That's a big laugh. You could never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind. That's why. And then as she's walking off, Linus responds, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. That comic reminds me of something else I once read. It's this conversation that takes place in Fyodor Dostoevsky's story, The Brothers Karamazov. It's a conversation between an old Russian monk named Father Zosima and a medical doctor who comes to seek his counsel about a problem that he's observed in his life. I love mankind, the doctor tells Father Zosima, but I marvel at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love human beings in particular, separately that is, as individual persons. In my dreams, I would often arrive at fervent plans of devotion to mankind and might very possibly have gone to the cross for humanity had that suddenly been required of me. And yet, I am unable to spend two days in the same room with someone else. And this I know from experience. In the space of a day and a night, I'm capable of coming to hate even the best of human beings. One because he takes too long over dinner. Another because he has a cold and he's perpetually blowing his nose. Uh, Both this doctor and Linus hit on what, what I think is a very common phenomenon. It's a phenomenon that you find even in the church. We're all good at loving each other in the abstract, when love is an ideal, something we all approve of. But when it comes down to actually loving and getting along with flawed, frustrating individuals, well, that's a different story. Mankind we love, it's, it's people we can't stand. Likewise, the church, as an ideal, we love. It's the Christians who make it up that we can't stand. That's one of the reasons that Paul's conclusion to his letter to the Romans is so striking. In our very first session, I I talked about how much of a theological masterpiece this letter is. And I think that this study has confirmed that. In many ways, I feel like we've barely skimmed the surface of Romans. But from all that we've discussed, there's no doubt that this is a deeply profound book. And maybe because of that, you might think that the person who wrote Romans, the Apostle Paul, that he just deals in abstractions and ideas. But when you read chapter 16, it becomes clear just how personal all of this is for him. This isn't abstract for him. It's very concrete. And Paul is not just talking about lofty principles here. He's he's talking to and he's talking about the lives of real flesh and blood people. In fact, in this final chapter, he talks about 37 of them by name, 37 real historical specific people that Paul knew, 37 people who no doubt had their own quirks and annoying habits, 37 people who probably could be just as difficult to love sometimes as the kind of people that make up our churches And yet, these are 37 people that Paul is grateful for and that he loves. And in his final words to them, there's a lesson for us about how the gospel speaks to our life together. In fact, I'd suggest that there are at least two lessons for us. And the first of those lessons is that the gospel and the gospel alone defines how we think about each other and how we regard each other's worth. The gospel transforms the way we see each other. Now, throughout our study of this letter, I've been stressing the fact that in order to really appreciate just how radical Paul's message is, you have to keep in mind the ancient Roman context into which he was writing. And that's no less true here in this final chapter. The world of ancient Rome was it's not really unlike our world today a world obsessed with honor and status and reputation. As Cicero once put it, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. And this this pursuit of honor and status, it didn't just affect how an ancient Roman person saw himself. They define how he saw and treated all the people around him. Roman people were acutely aware at all times of where each other fit on the scale of importance and respectability. And they made sure to treat each other accordingly. Which means that if you're a wealthy and powerful man, you were treated with great dignity and respect. But if you were a slave, or even if you were a woman, you receive very little of that respect. And yet, of the people that Paul mentions by name, nearly a third of them are women. And two of them, Phoebe and Junia, are even referred to in ways that suggest they had some kind of official ministerial role within the Christian community. Phoebe, Phoebe is described as a diaconos, a deacon. And Junia is mentioned as being revered among the apostles. In fact, some readers of Paul's letter, such as the ancient church father, John Chrysostom, interpret Paul's wording here to mean that that Junia is actually being named among the apostles. Now, other women, such as Prissa, the wife of Aquila, and Mary, are described by Paul as his co-laborers and his fellow workers in the gospel. Now, some of Paul's Roman contemporaries would, they would have no doubt have been puzzled at the respect and honor that he is publicly lavishing on these women by naming them as he did. But Paul's understanding of a person's worth has been completely transformed by the gospel. It changes the way he sees people. It's not just his estimation of the worth of these women. There are other surprises in this list of names as well. Now, while we can't be totally sure who these people were, there's good reason to think that quite a number of them were either household or imperial slaves. Andronicus, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, Philologus. We don't know who these men were for certain, but we do know that all of their names Were common Greek and Roman names for slaves. And therefore, there's good reason to assume that most, if not all of them, were in fact slaves. Now, keep in mind, Paul is writing this letter knowing it will be read out loud and that it's going to be distributed among churches. He knows that a wide variety of people will hear his greetings, and he knows that they'll be paying attention to whom he honors and for whom he gives thanks. And despite all that, he chooses to name and honor women and slaves. Not exclusively, of course, but but they make up a lot of the people he mentions. Now imagine the impact that would have on how people understand the consequence of Paul's gospel. Throughout his letter, he has been insisting that what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus that it completely transforms our our categories and understanding of human worth. We are all unworthy, and yet, by the grace of God, we have been made beings of infinite worth, united with the very person of Jesus. And that has real-life consequences. It means that, as he puts it in Galatians, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's theology suggests. And it's exactly what he reinforces in these final greetings. Whom he pays attention to, whom he names, whom he thinks is a person of great worth. All of this has been transformed by the gospel he preaches. That's the first lesson We can learn from Paul's greetings. The second lesson is perhaps a bit less obvious. For the second lesson that these greetings reinforce is that the the Christian experience of salvation is not simply a matter of a person's individual relationship with God or individual faith. Because the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection, is not to create free, individual, independent Christians. Quite the contrary. The gospel makes us not independent, but dependent on one another. Now, why would I say that that is less than obvious? Well, mostly because I think it goes against the grain, not only of the broader culture in which we live, but even of a lot of Christian culture and habits. Americans have always been inclined to self-reliance and independence. That's been a frequent and regular observation that social scientists who study American culture, that they've made for a very long time, from figures like Alexis de Tocqueville in the early 1800s to modern scholars like Robert Bella and Robert Putnam. They all agree, we Americans are very individualistic. And you can see that individualism even in our churches. Just think about the language that we sometimes use when choosing a church. We often talk about finding a, a church that meets our needs, a church that has good preaching and good music, church that's got a good children's program or a good men's and women's ministry. And sometimes people use this kind of language when they're trying out various churches, and occasionally, you'll even hear people call it church shopping. And of course, all of those are good things. But underlying it all is an assumption that the purpose of church is to nourish and enrich our lives as individuals. That the reason we go to church is to meet our own individual needs. And that's very different from how Paul, how Paul talks about the church, In Romans chapter 12, he uses the analogy of a body to say that as Christians, we're not just separate individuals. We're actually bound to each other. And we depend on each other in the same way that different parts of a body are bound and dependent on each other. For as in one body, he puts it, we have many members and the members do not have all the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Later on in chapter 14, as we already discussed, Paul says that being a Christian means belonging to a community of people with whom you don't always agree and for whom you have to give up some of your own individual rights and preferences. But I really think that maybe it's in the final chapter, in the way that he sends these greetings, that you can see just how unindependent Paul is, and just how much he thinks of himself and other Christians as being bound to and dependent on each other. Now, first he mentions Phoebe, the woman who is a deacon, and who is probably the person entrusted with bringing the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. And he asked the Roman Christians, he he asked them first to welcome her, as he puts it, in the Lord, in a way worthy of saints. And then he asked them to assist her with anything she might need because, he says, because she has done the same for many others and even for himself. Now, when you first read that, you might not pay much attention to it. It sounds like the sort of nice thing a person would try to say in a letter. Oh, by the way, this is Phoebe, Please welcome her and help her out. But if you think about it, Paul's saying a lot more than that. He tells the Roman Christians to welcome her in the Lord, which is a way of reminding them that in Christ, she is already bound to them and they to her. She's not just a nice woman. She is literally a part of their body. And then when he mentions that she's also a patron, which probably means she was a woman of some wealth and social status who had used her resources to help others in need. And he says that, but then, and this is very important, he also describes her as a person in need. Others have depended on her, but she also needs help. Now, I think that if we're honest, a lot of us struggle with that last part. We're happy to be the patron, we like to think of ourselves as someone who, who gives to others and upon whom others can depend. But I'm not sure how many of us like to think of ourselves as depending on other people and needing help. And It's not just Phoebe. Paul, Paul actually thinks of himself that way. He says that Phoebe has helped him, that Prissa and Aquila risked their necks to protect him, that he's indebted to the labors of people like Mary and Urbanus, and Trophana, and Trophosa, and Persis, that he depended on Tertius to actually write down the words of the letter, and Gaius to give him a place to stay when he needed a place to stay. And when you think about the life of Paul, all the teaching and travel that he did, the the authority and the respect that he held among early Christians, you might be tempted to think that here's this man who's very self-sufficient, self-reliant person. But Paul clearly doesn't think of himself in that way at all. He thinks of himself as someone who needs other people to help him. Someone who's very dependent on what other people do for him. And part of the reason he thinks that is because he believes what he tells other people. He believes what the gospel suggests, that that he can't save himself. That he desperately needs what God has done for him and that he has been bound to other Christians like an arm bound to a body. Because for Paul, that's what it means to be Christian. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ is not just that he has made it possible to have a personal relationship with him. The good news is that he has joined us to other people, people we didn't choose people who sometimes may be annoying and aggravating, people with whom we will have conflicts and disagreements, the very kind of people that Linus and that doctor from the brothers Karamazov had such a hard time putting up with. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, God has bound us together and he's made us dependent on each other so that together we can discover the life for which we were created. The book of Romans began with the bad news that through sin, through idolatry, our relationships became defined by envy, greed, competition, deceit, slander, and arrogant independence. By the end of Romans, however, Paul gives us a glimpse into a very different way of life. The good news of the gospel is that we are no longer independent, no longer struggling for status or worth, no longer in competition with each other, no longer rivals. Instead, like Paul and Phoebe, we have been made worthy. We have been bound to each other, and now and now we live out what God has done for us by both giving help and receiving help by caring for each other and depending on each other's care. And that, according to Paul, that is very good news.